The Creative Trust is a limited podcast series to celebrate 20 years of Gloss Creative. Together with our stellar alumni, we'll share everything we know to be true about the creative process and the business reality of running a small but powerful design platform. Two decades ago, I started Gloss Creative as my creative platform for experimentation and exploration. What has ensued has been an endlessly rewarding creation of ephemeral installations, each one put up, pulled down, each one leaving an enduring mark on its audience. I learned early on that I could make audiences fall in love with environments simply by making them feel and experience something. Memories that lasted long after the physical immersion had gone. It crystallised my long-held belief that your business plan is to harness your unbridled creative force and that creative renewal is your most powerful weapon over time. Welcome to the Creative Trust. Well, here we are. It's the second series of the Creative Trust. We have got so many amazing things lined up this year. We've got so many amazing people to talk to. Uh, The list keeps growing. So um, I'm excited that everyone's joining us today and very excited to start this series again. And today we're talking to one of Australia's most amazing exhibition designers. Today we're talking to Ingrid Rule from NGV and she is the Head of Design and Construction and Installation at NGV. So for those of us who have been to the gallery recently to see, you know, the Gabrielle Chanel Manifesto have definitely seen some of Ingrid and her team's amazing work. As you know, I like to make my own bios um, and we will cover off her bio as we talk today. But I met Ingrid firstly through a man called Peter King who worked at the gallery. Peter started his own gorgeous studio called Peter King Studio and is doing amazing things. And from then on, we started to work with Ingrid. So we've had some amazing talks through the years that we have worked together now. And I guess the thing that amazes me about Ingrid is the ca- firstly the calibre of work that uh, she and her team produce. and the sort of the the grace and the skill with which they do it um, is really unbelievable. And I think there'll be so much that all of us can be inspired by about not only what they do, but the way they go about it. So thank you so much for coming today, Ingrid. It's so great to have you with us. Um, thank you. All right. So I'm obsessed with how people get creative. So I guess my first question is, How did you get creative and how did your childhood set you up to be that creative person you are today? Well, I think first of all, it's an absolute honour and pleasure. So thank you so much for the invite. (laughs) Yeah, it's, um, I'm so curious actually to find out where this conversation takes us. How did I get creative? You know, I was been thinking about that and I I think, you know what, I, I grew up in Bendigo. Central Victoria. Country girl. Country girl. Beautiful. I spent most of my time outdoors. I was always in the landscape. I was, I grew up as an only child up until the age, I think, of 10 or so. My parents had had split early on. And so I, I guess I had two different kind of worlds and I had a lot of opportunity for being around a lot of creative people as well. My mum studied fine art, so I, I think I what I had around me was definitely you know I had creativity. I had mum painting, drawing, printmaking. There were easels in the house, and there was a lot of encouragement to have a creative output. So, I think I spent a lot of time, a lot of time drawing, and a lot of time looking and watching others. And I think I, you know, the sort of the community that was around us, there were artists and musicians and writers and and as kids, 
we there was a great network of kids, so we used to just kind of hang, hang out together like like ferals, yeah. really, <laughs> roaming, just hanging on in the edges, roaming the streets, and and you know in each other's houses, which were always you know filled with art, filled with filled with music, and you know playing in mullock heaps and and all the things you're probably not meant to do. And all the dangerous, all stuff. the dangerous stuff, which was like where all that you know being creative and and you know what I don't I don't remember having I don't remember having toys I don't remember having not until a particular age I think and so you know I've got early memories of of like holding sticks or or and and creating things out of the environment in, in which I was in and and having a I guess a a really active imagination. And I think being an only child, you you need to, you need to, you need to, occupy you need to yeah, you have your own, you've got your own little world, world as well. Um, and so I think that was really incredibly active for me. My father was a barrister, but on the side, he made wooden toys. Beautiful. And we often lived in old houses. So houses that you could kind of, you know, I, th- I think he said to me once that, you know, there were opportunities for drawing on walls. And, you know, where you don't normally get those sort of, you don't like, yeah. you don't let kids do that sort of stuff. But, um, and, you know, and, and rigging up devices to sort of old pull light switches. So always, always creating, always making. And then I, I guess the other thing really was that I had, I had an amazing aunt who was in the creative industry. She went, she went to New York in the 80s. Uh, as a as a journalist, and she ended up at MTV Creative Production, and she set up a a whole lot of she set up MTV um, studios all around the world, and so I had that influence of music and and creativity, and and she would she would take me to performances and shows and theatre. So, as a kid, I think I was exposed to a lot of creative outputs. That's incredible. And I think, you know, the example that you're saying about your auntie, you know, it's that whole thing they talk about now, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. Um, So I think it is very powerful when you can see other people, you know, being creative in their world and doing what brings them joy. That is such a powerful, um, what I call osmosis, you know, where you just, as a child, you just take that on board without any question or anything. You just suck it up, really. And that, I think, feeds that creative, you know, thing as well. And interesting that um, I'm always interested in the intersection of kind of the right and left brain in a very basic sense that, you know, your dad was a barrister and your mum was an artist. You know, I love, you know, there's sort of balance between organisation and creativity, chaos and order. How do you think, you know, uh, you know, in your childhood, um, you seem, you know, when I see you working, you seem so balanced in, in both, you've got both strength in creativity and emotional intelligence and organisational skills as well. Do you think that was something that you had from an early age? I think it was probably... Uh, and, and maybe it was that, for, you know, a sense of independence that I, I learned, but maybe it was also just this being put in situations where I was always communicating. I was often communicating with people a lot older than me and with, yes, with kids around, you know, with friends, but also just, you know, different generations. And I was always, you know, having conversations um, about ideas and about things and you know definitely my my dad always encouraged this I I guess this this level of inquiry into things so um, and conversations and ideas were taken very seriously but also playfully at the same time so I was always encouraged to test ideas and to explore or challenged on on what I was thinking and yeah, for me, you're right. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting for all of the, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in my mind which just churns over and over and I can, I feel like sometimes I can think of like a thousand different things so it could be chaos but everything has like a pathwork back. So while I might 
have a conversation which can be quite tangential. It can go on a sort of a big arc. It can come back, come back. again so that all things are kind of connected. Actually, and it is really nice when you find others who can go off on that path with you yeah. and not be distressed by it. Yeah. <laughs> and I know we've had those conversations where, oh, and what about, and what about, and what about, but then we've gone, nah, let's forget that. But exactly. we've had that exploration and you sort of come back to, okay, well, what's the way forward? And it didn't include anything that you've been talking about for the last 30 minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think that, you know, I mean, that those kind of conversations you know, doing what I do and being who I am, they're the things that are incredibly important to me. I don't think there's any time when I've worked on an exhibition or a design, whether it be spatial, whether it be object-based, that I haven't had conversations with people about it. Mm. And I think that's, that's certainly what inspires me and being around. So I am not a solo practitioner. I'm very much about that dialogue with others and other people who challenge me on those ideas or take it on a new new path. And I find that exciting. It. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty good. Yeah. And for you to have had that as a child, I mean, what you're describing with your dad to me sounds like the beginning of conceptual work, really, because there's always the meaning and the why together with the good looks and the spatial aspects as well, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. So... As you moved through, as you grew up, what were the sort of more formal, I guess, opportunities for learning and the informal opportunities for learning that sort of led you on this creative path to um, eventually, you know, I guess the question really is, when did you first think that exhibition design might be something that you'd like to spend your time doing? I think primary school for me, and, and we've had conversations about at schooling, but it was definitely, uh, it offered opportunities for creativity, you know, once again. So that was, uh, there's a, a good, you know, foundation that started there. I think then also, you know, once I got to sort of high school, 11 and 12, I, I think that there, there was a fantastic art teacher that I had oh, who just encouraged love me. Love a good art teacher. Um, Marg Standen and she was just, yeah, she was incredible. And um, and she got me, you know, I was one of those top arts students. Oh, and, of fantastic. course, you know, cringe when I, I look back at what that work was. It's just, <laughs> but but that was, you know, I mean, she just tapped into something that was incredibly important. And then I guess, so then I, I went on to study interior design at RMIT. So that's a, a four-year course. And I think, I think that's actually, it sort of answers your, your question a little bit earlier. It was, it was that it was a place where I could conceptualise, I could think laterally as well, but I also had to learn how to, um, I guess, organise my ideas and organise myself. I mean, it was a very different course to what it is now and there was a lot of, you know, a lot of amazing freedom and, and we'd, go on, we'd go on camps and we would be in the landscape once again and we'd be testing things and we'd be, you know, on the beach um, moulding things or, or making spaces or, you know, using, using our body in interesting ways and, and testing testing ideas. I think that RMIT design course was a testing ground, honestly, and it was a way, it just encouraged this way of thinking and inquiry and investigation. I think when I came out of that, I kind of, I remember feeling as though I was lacking some practical skills, but now when I look back on it, I knew how to think and I knew how to conceptualise and I knew how, how to, and I had that confidence in developing ideas and taking, taking an idea and, and, and actually creating multiples but investigating and working out if it was the, the right thing. And, um, and I can, I mean, in s sometimes I think I have been known to, even with my team, you know, there have been comments of, oh, there's so many ideas, I don't know which one to take. And it's like, well, I don't know, I just think, that's what I naturally do is thrash out kind of things. And I think that really came from my university mm. studies. And then 
yeah, so when I when I left RMIT, I took a couple of years out and try and work out what I was going to do. I worked in a small interior design practice, and I think that was a big failure. I think it was just it was it just didn't quite work, and I wasn't doing. I didn't feel good at what I was doing, and I couldn't find my place. And I was. Yeah, I think I was I was doing all these things like trying to document with CAD and, and I couldn't I wasn't very good at drafting or any of those sort of things. And so I think I left that and feeling a little disappointed. But how great is that in the whole journey of that thing of going into the unknown and then not knowing how it's gonna turn out. Yeah. And you can see already I'm feeling like that progression from when you're a child to this, you know, going out and exploring. And eventually maybe finding the thing that does make you happy and that then it just clicks to the next stage and you progress and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, there's this confidence that comes. It's just pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think the kind of groundbreaking moment was when I had a conversation with a friend of mine at the time, like years and years ago, Georgie Morgan. She was working at the NGV as an exhibition designer and it was the first time that I'd discovered that you could be a designer within an art gallery and because I'd I had such a strong connection to art um and I was either going to do I think my study was either going to be interior design or fine arts and I chose interior design and then I discovered that this was a job and a role I think we went and sat down had a beer and spoke about what she did and I was just that's what I'm going to do I'm going to I'm going to work out how to get there so I contacted the gallery I didn't, quite, do. I didn't quite have enough experience and I didn't quite, there wasn't a role there, but I made a contact. And then I, um, I applied for, there was a job that came up at Museum Victoria and I applied for that. I didn't really have the skills, of course, you know, and, and I don't think, I think they, they wanted someone who could draft and, um, but I could draw and I could articulate ideas and I could articulate other people's ideas and I could spatialize and I could yeah, I could turn them into these visuals that people could understand and I could talk about them. And that's the first step, isn't it? Once you've got the idea to be able to communicate it to others is pretty important. Yeah. <laughs> it's everything. Yeah. yeah. And that somehow I got the job. Amazing. And it was just and then that just changed everything. So what were you when you were first there, what sort of role did you have? What did you do every day? It was exhibition design role. But I was more of a, I guess it was a junior role and I was meant to document, do drawings. And, of course, as I said, I couldn't use CAD. So so then somehow somehow I convinced them to bring somebody in to teach me while they were paying me. Genius management skills coming out already. I'll just delegate that. And they did. And then I learned how to document and I did, you know, I used to draw, so worked on exhibitions with thousands of objects, uh, you know, in them. So I used to scale and draw all of those objects. And I just, you know, I kind of, I just did the hard work and I was like, I'm going to master this. I'm going to get it. Um, I got my foot in the door and I'm, I'm not going to let this escape me. And I loved it. And my experience there of making connections with curators and specialists and at the museum there were preparators and they would make a lot of sets and they would do the taxidermy on animals and they would um so they were very creative people and so I had this this I was in the center I was back where I I I knew I needed to be this is where I belonged beautiful yeah I I ended up I spent five years at the museum and and I worked on I moved on to working on a lot of the science galleries so presentation of, yeah, rocks, you know, 500 million years of dynamic earth and, and you know, um, all these taxidermy animals and, yeah, the start of early life and dinosaurs. And it was just, it was incredible. It was amazing. It sounds incredible too. I'd love to talk about the creative process and the development process for exhibition design. In particular, how it different, differs from some of the 3D forms that maybe I'm more familiar with like set design or visual merchandising or production design for film, that sort of thing, exploring the similarities and what's different. But let's just start to talk about 
the whole process of how the whole thing starts at NGV. Obviously, I've seen, you know, I've seen upstairs in the galleries and I've seen the amazing labyrinth underneath there, which we will talk about. But how does your process start? Where does it begin? I mean, really, it, it begins it begins two to three years out from any exhibition being executed and and therefore, you know, the public to see. So there is quite a lot of groundwork. And it it starts off, the beginning of a show always starts off with research and inquiry and listening and digging for information and, and picking the brain of the curatorial team. So there's, I reckon there is a good six months, six to eight months of just research and inquiry and thinking about ideas. So there's a lot that stays and within the head. And is that in collaboration with other parts of the teams within the gallery? I guess the beginning beginning of an idea for an exhibition, there's a, there's a number of people that are involved and as designers we're one of those. We also have curatorial, the executive team. Tony Elwood is always very invested in the ideas and the, the design. And conservation, of course, there are a lot of teams. And as the process develops, then more and more teams come on board. And actually I find that the more teams you bring on board early on, even though everyone may not be active, it contributes to the ideas and it makes a much more successful design, installation, presentation. We have an incredible digital team at the gallery and when you start working with people beyond what they can practically offer but when you engage them in a thought process or ideas uh, and it's about collaboration and when you also expand, you provide the opportunity to the greater design team, whether everybody in the team is working on that show or not, but you start these conversations. And I think, I think that's what's integral to, you know, good, good designs. Of course, there's always some shows which have happened a lot quicker. There are shows where there might be design might sit back a little more. Perhaps it's more about the artist's work. It's a bit cleaner. It's less obvious what we do however there is always design and there is always consideration so the process really starts with that research and listening and then it develops into this conceptualization stage and I think this is where we you know you process information and you start coming up with ideas you know those ideas that just fire like pistons and they're yeah. like there's probably a million there coming. yeah <laughs> there's a million there but there might be like a couple of good ones or a couple that have some merit and then you move into this it's, it's I guess it's a testing or a beta phase and and in design we call it design development but that's where you test your ideas and you start pushing you've selected you've narrowed down a few and based on the research and other people, uh, how, it, how it makes sense to articulate those exhibitions. And is this for you, sorry to interrupt you there, but um, is this where you pick up a pen? Like what is, how do you personally, you know, apart from obviously speaking out and ideas, what's your personal expression of development? I pick up a pen in the research and listening phase and I draw my notes. Sometimes, yes, sometimes they are, you know, that there are lists created but more often than not I'm drawing the notes and the words and the connections. So it becomes, for me, I start processing that uh, I guess the curatorial, the narrative and turning that into a spatial response and I think the way that I look at developing ideas and talking about things and creating responses is almost like spaces sculpture. And there are, depending on how you move around it, there are so many different perspectives and so many different ways that you can look at things. Mm-hmm. And I think for me that starts 
immediately. And then I guess once you start getting into that conceptual phase, then some of the drawings and yeah, I use I use pen on paper mm. and I draw quickly and and fast and, and sometimes they're really sketchy and sometimes and I've I've seen your your beautiful <laughs> sketches and they're drawings as well. But they don't have to be. Yeah. It just you know, gets the they, idea it out. It gets it out. It's and I think that's what's really tool, important. It? Yeah. And it's like it just it literally flows through you. So um, you know, in some ways, like I, I wish I could still draw on all of the walls and have all of the, you know, the ideas. We well, kind of do. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess mm. so. I do watch that, you know, I, I see the design evolving sometimes in say in the computer you know, thinking about using CAD or, or modelling these ideas. And sometimes I just find that a little bit restrictive and it's mm. like depends on what the tools can do. And it can I, be slow. Yeah, it can be slow and it, it sort of doesn't get the, the shading. You know, it, it's just about, it's about sitting with somebody and sketching an idea very quick, quickly with them and having that conversation. And I think that's what ev- evolves you know, that's what helps take something on a journey. And, you know, there might not be much that I draw. There might be just a little bit, a fragment that you go, oh, yeah, I, I can see that in the end result. But it could also be about somebody else's response. Exactly. And how great is that when you talk about ideas and then all of a sudden someone else takes that idea and starts to let it evolve? Yeah, yeah. And it just like, you know, up it goes. Boom. Yeah, <laughs> boom, as we say. Yeah. It's just spinning around out there and then people yeah. sort of add to it and it's like this cyclone of excitement and motivation. Yeah. And I think that's part of the superpower of collaboration, definitely. And I see that um, within your, I mean, it must be to get the results in the blockbusters that you get, it must be that. It must be that collaborative I, effort. I just, I just don't think that there's no way that I would independently I would be able to do any of that without the team. It's about everyone's contribution and everyone offers something slightly different and a different perspective. And So who, what sort of roles go into making an exhibition? Like what are the titles of the people? What what are their job roles? Describe them. We've got we've got exhibition designers and exhibition designers are actually people who have studied interior design, architecture, sometimes industrial, but we have designers who uh yeah, come from architecture, interior, uh and we also have graphic designers as well. do anything without graphic designers. Exactly. They're the best. Exactly. If you have bad graphics, you have nothing. Yep, yep. (sighs) And I just think that the the more and more that we can blur those boundaries between, say, what we say 2D and 3D, which actually then takes us into 4D, which I think is the world in which we inhabit in four dimensions through moving through space. And the more that we can blur those and create these beautiful moments of dialogue and choreography between information and graphics and these different 2D, 3D planes, it's the more exciting it can be. Definitely. And I think this balance of, as you said, information and meaning with how to present it so it's interesting. I think, you know, my view of NGV is that the fact that you your remit is about design as well as art is the perfect marriage of 2D and 3D. And I think that's why NGV is so successful because when people come to, whether it's a blockbuster or anything, I, you know, I know that the art is going to be presented in a way that it just draws you into the story and just stays with you and when you come out you're left with something pretty magical you know inside and I think it is this the fact that you use design as well as art to do that I think that's really magical and out of all of the galleries that I've seen in the world you guys do that 
so beautifully. Do you think that is something, the fact that you, you design is part of the NGV as well as art, is that something that comes through in the work you do? Yeah, I, I think it's um, I think it's incredibly exciting to have design speaking to art and within the gallery context because I think what it does is that it can expand your experience and I think you know, you you will have memories of when you looked at pieces of art and you will and those memories could also they could be expanded, they, they could be of the feeling that you had of being in a space and the condition of the, the lighting. You, you may not think about it in all of this mm. great detail, but all but of it's these working things, on you. <laughs> it's working on you. You know what the temperature of the space is, how the light refracts off off the artwork or the painting and or the sculpture as you move around it how you experience it how you do you walk around a corner and then once you know the space opens up and it presents a work and does the space then narrow down and take you on a different journey I think that that I mentioned before I think that you know design as well not just within the gallery context but is like a choreographing space really beautiful and I think that I think that everyone can have a different experience and the thing that makes it different from you know theatre you're inhabiting this or you have an opportunity to be in it Mm. be inside it and engage and engage stand with it yeah Mm. and I think that there are opportunities to take people out of kind of, you know, out of the everyday, out mm. of their, their world and immerse them in a new reality and a new space. And I think that's what's so incredibly exciting. Mm. And everyone will have their own unique experience of that. Yeah, and so many elements and so many people go into contributing to this. To that moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, that one it's moment. actually insane. Yeah. The question I've got now and really interested, you've mentioned the word the fourth dimension, would love to talk more about that. Maybe you can do that um, within this sort of next, I guess, thought process is really interested in how you design the audience journey as the bigger question. You know, how do you move through it? How does it play out spatially? Uh, those, you know, is there a template you follow? How do you go about moving the audience through? It's something that we look at at the start of each exhibition. And we, I mean, of course, we have floor plans. And so they help us understand the space that we're working with. And they help us think about the perfect flow of visitors. We understand the scale of different spaces and how that can impact how you might read works. We look at what works will actually fit in in each space. There are some spaces that are a lower, um, more intimate, and then we have very you know expansive uh, spaces as well. But I think that what you do is that you start really engaging with the curator and talking about. What's the story that we're telling here? What, what's the idea? What, what do we want people to experience? And so as a designer, you support that and you support that as a, a journey. You, I guess it's creating a series of vignettes which then expose the sort of the main thematics or ideas that the curators are conveying. And that information that they're conveying ends up in a, a text which appears on the wall, but you support it spatially so that perhaps people get a sense or an idea of what that is before they even come across that content or the, the written the written word. And I think that every exhibition is approached in a slightly different way. Some have a real formality to them and some, I guess, are developed around an early idea. So, for example, when we did, uh, worked on the, the MoMA exhibition, I had this very early idea, and, and with the team, of course, that there was, you know, it was about this, the white cube, the white box, and how would we take the idea of the white box from New York, from MoMA, how would we insert that 
within the gallery. And so we, we literally built with models a series of cubes that were inserted into our NGV gallery spaces. Uh, and, and we create foam, create foam core and card models, of course, so there's a lot of play who, and a lot of sculpture. That? Who makes the models? Have you got We all do. Oh, we amazing. all do. We all participate in it and sometimes everyone's adding. Craft and own. At a very absolutely. elevated level, yeah. of course. Yeah. <laughs> and then we literally we inserted these cubes within the spaces and then we started to twist them and play play with them and then that created that visitor journey. So there was a little bit of both. I guess it's it's thinking about we knew that there needed to be rooms to tell stories and how might we how might we use those rooms as a sculptural experience? So it ended up that people would walk into a room and then out of the white box into a black environment and then back into another white box. Mm. It was a really simple idea and it was an early one but it was seen through to the end. But then other exhibitions require other modes of thinking or working or they could be very much, some could be more formulaic or plan-based or very spatial or um, and some organic. And I guess it organic. depends on the artwork too. Yeah. What are we showing? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. That's exciting. That's really exciting. Um, one thing that I've noticed um, when I've been in the gallery with you is the logistics. I mean, it, I'm amazed that with so many, I'll call them restrictions in a way, um, or challenges or opportunities, I'm not sure what to call them, there's a lot of restrictions because obviously, you know, there's a security risk, there's a damage risk, everything needs to be very looked after. Obviously, that's the conservators. And yet there's all these restrictions and yet some of the most innovative things happen at the gallery, you know, like the Pink Lake or whatever. And I'm, I'm just thinking, oh, my God, imagine the risk assessment. That must have been a nightmare, you know, those sorts of things I jumped to straight away. But you guys always manage to do the amazing thing. What is the thought processes that everyone must have in that, um, in that building to make those things happen. How is that driven? I think firstly, as a designer, restrictions uh, inspire creativity. So restrictions are really important. They start setting some parameters and they establish boundaries or things for you to push off and against. So some of those restrictions, there are two types, I think. There's the practical restrictions and at the gallery, there are restrictions which are conservation-based, so the welfare, the looking after the artworks, mm. whether we own them or whether they're loaned from other institutions. Mm. And fortunately, there are universal museum standards which we can also go by, but every institution will have its specifics. So there'll be lighting conditions. There's a certain amount of light that we can put on works. There will be temperature and humidity and there will be maybe display conditions or whether something needs to be within a showcase or under glass or protected or whether it can be on open display. Uh, there are restrictions within the building that's either, you know, weight-bearing, so engineering restrictions. And you think about it, it's a fairly old building now and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't built with the type of ambitious exhibitions and presentations that we have. And actually the, the pool in the garden is, uh, I guess it's on a, a sort of a floating garden, really. It's suspended. Wow. And so the logistics around that is actually huge. But it's interesting because that sort of problem solving, I think it's, once again, it's really important as a designer. And we have project managers in our team that do an incredible incredible job and I think the relationship between the project manager and the designer and the builders and the artists and you know that designed that that makes it richer and I think yeah without all of those people contributing yeah it would be very very difficult to do but I think the the other restrictions I was just going to say that are the ones that are kind of almost you know, you have to work out how to approach these, but are like people's headspace 
on what can and can't be done. And what do you, if I mention Picasso to you, do you have a particular way of thinking about how that should be presented? You know, we think, well, how do we break the mould on that? Like where's the opportunity to actually take this on a different on a different path. How, how can we how can we look at it from a different perspective? With fresh Once eyes. Once again, with fresh eyes, how do we sort of, yeah, we try a new approach. And I think that's what happened, you know, with Esha Nendo as well. It was a whole new way of looking Incredible. at those works mm. and discovering them and seeing them in a new light and making these incredible connections. And I think as as designers and exhibition designers, I think they're the sort of experiences that we want people to have mm. and you know it was it was seeing something it's like seeing something fresh for the first time and i have to say i was very pleased to see that win an australian interior design award uh, for installation design that was um so well deserved that um concept was just unbelievable and yeah. just very exciting to work you know even at the fringes of that with the gala. It was a very exciting year. It was amazing. Yeah, I, I think that the opportunity to work with externals, you know, such as Nendo, um, you know, you, you just it's it's incredible. You can't you can't beat that. And I do have to ask, um, you know, of all the notes I've been writing this morning, I do have to ask, how did Faye Too Good and yourselves make that gallery happen um earlier? you know, last year, that was incredible. She's in London and you're out here mm. and the result is spectacular. Yeah. Um, all, all, all the people we know, all our designers, you know, that was the standout and just that room being so, you know, the low ceiling uh, just and the colours and the sculptures with the old wor- older works were just exquisite how did that happen yeah you know I think that was that's been one of my favorite by far it's just uh I have great respect and admiration for Faye Mm. and a few years ago actually a colleague and a very dear friend of mine uh Simone Leamon uh we, we traveled and we met with Faye um and we had a early discussions about being involved in the triennial and to actually realise that it's probably a standout, I think, for that me. feels Quite. like a pinch you moment. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely. So I guess the way that we did it was that we had this ongoing dialogue and conversation and so we would meet virtually and we would talk about the works. So we would meet with Faye and, um, and Jan and we would – yeah, we would discuss what her ideas were and what qualities um, that she was looking for within the interior and how we could contribute as a team. And so, and we found, you know, we would go off and we would find materials and we would send them to them and uh, we would look at details and connections and uh, different types of printing to achieve the kind of that interior quality that was present within her work, which was just so incredibly beautiful and to deal with the types of, you know, lighting conditions to, I guess, illuminate works and to construct a narrative around was just absolutely incredible. I think she, uh, there were three spaces. It was daylight, candlelight and moonlight. And they just had this, yeah, quality that yeah where you you feel it's just it feels right it feels feels soft it feels inviting and mysterious all at the same time it's it's those qualities which you can't always describe and I feel like lighting is one of those things that is very subjective and I'm interested to know who are the lighting people and who can talk about numbers to do with lighting you know I think that must be a very finite group of people who have that skill talk to me about who does that and what did they learn to become that lighting I think is one of the key elements especially when you're it's huge dealing with interiors so without light there there is there's 
um, I guess there's there's no experience to be had. We certainly can't welcome our, our visitors into a gallery without light. Light is the thing that reveals the quality, the personality, um, how you read those works. It does a whole lot of practical things, but it does a whole lot of emotional things as well. And there are a whole lot of technical, uh, I guess, aspects to the lighting. How high is the ceiling? Where are the lights positioned? What type of lights? They profile lights, wall washers. And we have a lighting team that, that work with us on creating the right light for these spaces. So they'll meet the conservation requirements, but they'll also pick up on how do we create this mood? What, what, is, what is the design? So that they're another articulation of the design. Lighting is an absolutely critical element. And once again, referring back to Escher Nendo or, or looking at the way that we've used light in Chanel to frame, to create portals in which you step through time, you step back to the early years, the beginning of Chanel. Mm. And we use light to frame things. We use light to reveal and to conceal. And it actually, it, it takes a long it takes a long time. So the discussions start early on the lighting and we, we will communicate light, our lighting intent as well, what, what, we want, what we want the space to feel like. And, and we the audience will talk. to feel, I guess, exactly. as well. Yes. Exactly. I've got some other things down here, you know, in terms of, you know, we've just started, touched on a little bit of lighting. One of the things I've got here is colour. Always interested to hear everyone we talk to what their personal colour palette is about, what's their view, their point of view on colour. And obviously an exhibition designer, we can't wait to hear what you've got to say. Colour is a, a never-ending journey. I feel like I'm a total junior burger with colour, total junior burger, even though I, I just feel like the discovery each time you use it, there is a new discovery. It's so fascinating to think about colour as sculptural or as about impacting on the space. And um, it, it's really interesting. We've been looking at our collection galleries and returning, returning them to actually fresh to white. And it's so fascinating to watch how those works shift or change, or how they present. They almost illuminate um, from the walls in a very different way. I think about grey and the grayscale as a whole series, a colour palette in itself. Of course. <laughs> yeah. And I think there are reasons why grey is also used for artwork because it has this neutral background. And, of course, it depends if it's warm or it's cool. And... I always love a moment of the unexpected colour or a colour that you think, is that meant to, like, you know. <laughs> Have it's they got just, that wrong? <laughs> is that like, yeah, is it a little bit wrong? Or is it, wow, I did not expect it and it reveals another side to a work. That's great. And, you know, as an audience member, when you come across that colour and you go, ooh, ooh, and then you go, if it's here, I should be paying attention because it means something. It does. Yeah. It does. And I think like everything has to mean something. It's not just there accidentally. It, it's not, not slapping it th on. <laughs> there, is, there is a reason for everything and I think I truly, as a designer, <laughs> I truly believe in that, in looking into, in that great investigation, in researching, in that integrity of hard work to get there. So whether you've got like whether you've got the ideas within you, I still think it's it's all about that discipline and that hard work to test things right to the very end, and whether it be about color and the reason why you chose that color, or a lack of, or the extremes of black and white. But what black? What black is right? Is it the blue black? Is it is it yellow black? Yellow black. Yeah. Yeah. So many. It's it's the the world of color is so is so interesting. It's and great, fun isn't it? And fascinating, and yeah, and and you know what it's like going from exterior to interior as well, and how colors change how it, and the light and changes evolve. It. Yeah, and, and like, I I I mean one of my favorite moments has been um, with color when um, 
I think it was just at a table setting that we were doing for a gala and I presented Tony with a, I think it was a maybe a brown, chocolate brown table, a navy napkin and a black chair and he was like, yeah, that's good together. And I'm like, wow, you know, no matching here, just make it interesting and dark and moody like what I wanted. He was like, yep. Good to go. But you've got to get those colours, you've got to get the tones right. Yeah. They all have to sit harmoniously yeah. or else you'll get a very different response. <laughs> it was a good response. So it was, was a good response. That was really so, good. So but got it that right. openness to colour yeah. um, is just, and, you know, as you said, it just changes and there's new iterations and that people come up with and at the time um, they yeah. mean different things. I just yeah. love that changing And I think, thing. like, play with it. Test. They, these are just, you know, and, and what we do, they're temporary installations. Yeah, so if so you don't like, like test, it for two months, you can get rid of yeah, exactly. it. exactly, test ideas. And I think that's one of the things that finally I'm starting to learn is to almost not be so precious about things. While I know I've done the research, the rigour and the thinking behind something, I can also have that element of play and, and I can also just try something out. And I think well. that's confidence. Yeah. It is definitely, I yeah. guess, you know, confident people, you know, put their ideas out there. And I guess that's what I want to ask about how you got your creative courage, you know. Um, you put your ideas out there when you're not guaranteed a result or a reaction that you might want. How did you get so confident? I, I don't know. It's a good question. I am confident when I've done the work that I need to do. So when I say something, I have a good foundation behind it and it's not just, you know, I, I, need, to, I need to appear confident. I need to know what I'm talking about. And I've, I am confident when I have a happy, confident team as well that are willing to put their ideas and, and to support and to work together. I'm confident when I'm rested. <laughs> Confident when I'm. Hey, you've just had four weeks off. I just had Yay. four weeks off. Yeah. yeah, we're all really nice people on holidays. I say. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when when you've got time, when you feel like your mind can play in, and yeah, it, it's not not under pressure. Or um, I know you've spoken about this with people on this podcast as well. But it is that time to to rest and to be think, fallow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and it's becoming. I think more important and people are realising it and understanding it and not just paying lip service to it, actually, you know, people taking months off, a year off, a sabbatical. Remember yeah. that word? Yeah. When you used to hear that you know, university professors would have a sabbatical, you know, what is that? How come they get a year off, you know? Yeah. Um, and having had one just recently, I'm all for it, you yeah. know? Yeah. So four weeks off is a dream. Yeah, absolutely. Keep, I think it's, um, keep that I think it's incredibly important. Definitely. You've worked on so many incredible projects. What's your favourite? I would say this Faye Too Good (laughs) would be my favourite. Do I I need to come up with a different one? No, go with that. Um, But I I think, you know, I I mentioned but having the opportunity to meet with Faye um, early on and to start these discussions and to be involved with Simone Liamon, who was the curator on that. I think it was just, you know, it was one of those moments of, wow, star, designer, dream come true, love this, this is, this is my moment. And, um, and to realise that and to create this beautiful space with Faye and to contribute, to be almost, you know, I, I felt like it was being part of, you know, our team was an extension of theirs as well. And Faye was incredibly generous and I think that she allowed us a way in to work That's with beautiful. them. And there was an incredible amount of, you know, confidence and and I think a, a mutual respect there. I think having the opportunity to have ongoing dialogue and conversations um, and, you know, so important over the last couple of years, it almost felt like that distance 
had evaporated. It, it wasn't there. That's unbelievable. And while it was really, it was really sad that she couldn't be here. Uh, will she come and see to it soon? See it? Wouldn't that be great well, if she could come out? Yeah, it would be. Except Continue it, the conversation. It, it is no longer. Yeah. So. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, but I, I think that for me, that was that's a favorite because it had a, a personal aspect, you know, and um, and I think visiting her studio in London. Uh, having those conversations, having our NGV team engaging conversations with her as well was incredibly important. And and I think it's really hard to have favourites at times and I think there is there's so much that you learn that, you know, with, each that, one. with each show. Definitely. I think MoMA definitely, um, simple claim, but it was, you know, having the opportunity to work with MoMA, you know, I mean, what, who gets that? You. <laughs> Who gets that? And to to meet, you know, honestly, to meet Glenn Lowry, um, yeah, I was overwhelmed. And I, I think he's that. an absolute genius to hear him speak. It was beautiful. Gives me goosebumps. It's like, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, just. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, happiness. Happiness in a bottle. What's your favourite exhibition that you've been to here or around the world that you've loved? Any exhibition? There was, okay, two because I can never have one thing I have to have multiple but I realize it has to be a favorite so a Yamamoto exhibition I saw at the VNA simple clean you could walk through the garments it was raw it was quite industrial and it was a new way I I felt of looking at exhibitions and another one at the VNA as well Alexander McQueen I mean how could you it was it was one of the most amazing experiences and I think you know, the design was absolutely, it was absolutely incredible. And spaces which articulated the ideas um, right down to the, the detail of the materials, the lighting, the, the experience, how you navigated, how you walked through, what your approaches were, how you were drawn to look at works, how you uh, discovered the making of or the conceptualising. And it was just, it was so incredibly rich. I think something, an exhibition like that is really powerful. I know that you've travelled a lot around the world with your work. What's your favourite gallery and where is it? My favourite gallery I think would be the Boros collection. It's, it's in Berlin and essentially it's a bunker and I think it's a private gallery. I was, before I started the NGV, I was travelling I had a, a great friend, um, Vivian, uh, who now works for Vitra, and uh, she she's a, a writer and writes about design. And she she got me in. It takes it takes forever. It takes months to get into this gallery and into this collection. And they take you can only go on a tour through it. And the tours are like I don't know eight people, ten people max. And so she rang them and said that I was a writer, I was writing about design, which I wasn't, of course, and got me in. Um, I was only there for a couple of weeks, so she got me in. And, yeah, it's this incredible bunker. Uh, I think that the, the guy that, that um, established it, I think his place is on top of the bunker. Maybe he was in advertising um, and he has this incredible collection from Oliver Eliasson to incredible contemporary artists and essentially the experience is as you enter into this bunker there's a number of spaces which have been carved out so you can imagine that the walls of a bunker would be meters deep or thick um, and reinforced um, with steel and so what they've done I think they they use like a diamond tip blade to carve out volumes of space to create new spaces and I think it's had this incredible history of like holding raves there you can still see sort of UV under UV light the paint that you know is on the walls and it's just the most incredible experience and it's nothing like any other gallery I've seen it was I, not. I've never even heard of it. No, you you got to go. I'll give you the details. Amazing. Book now. You might get in, in a couple of years. I don't right. know. Right. Or just make something. Maybe the up. pandemic will be over. Maybe. maybe. Great. Maybe. Let's go with that. It's incredible. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, there must be so many galleries 
you've yeah. been to around the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I haven't heard of that one. Incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. Okay, so another couple of quick questions for you. And this is something that we ask everyone. Are you a front of house person or a back of house person? Back of house, without a doubt. Why? I need to make. I have, I have, there's a desire to make. There is, it just runs, runs through, it's in my blood. Um, I need to be part of the making, the conceptualising, the talking about the ideas. Someone else can have the limelight at the front. I just need to make, I need to create. That is the most succinct answer we've had so far. <laughs> that is brilliant and um, continues the score. So we've only had, I think, one person say that they want front of house. And what's your favourite quote? You know, at, at the moment I've been, I've been following some fairly wise words, Adam Grant, who's an organisational psychologist. We adore him. And I just think, you know, what he's, he's – I'm just following him on Instagram and what he's been posting, it is just resonating. I have one. It's long. Great. Can we I go for it? Go for it. Yeah. We listen too much to people who think fast and shallow and too little to people who thinks, think deep. Being quick on their feet may make them sound smart, but it doesn't mean that they are wise. Big decisions and tough problems require careful consideration, not rapid responses. And I think that that resonates with me because sometimes, sometimes I doubt myself when I need to think about something and I take time and I just don't punch out all the answers. But that kind of, you know, it just reinforces my process and how I do things, and it just, it makes me feel good. It brings that confidence back. We love that. It's my and quote it, you know, for the year. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's so brilliant. Thank you so much for coming in today. It's been so much fun. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. It has. It's been so much fun. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you. 